Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. And um, well, thank you. Someone just said happy birthday. I turned 53 years old on July the 6th. And it was uh, wonderful. Had a great time at the Outer Banks. Um, my wife has cousins that every year lease this house that has nine bedrooms, ten bathrooms. You can just rattle around in the place. But uh, we have an amazing, amazing time together. They're all Italians, so I say no more. <laughs> a lot of hand motions and loud voices, and we have an awesome time. So um, people walked up to me already this morning and said, gee, you're tan? And I know that. I'm well aware that I tan very easily. This is the result of about 25 beach volleyball games um, where we won every single one. <laughs> Not supposed to lie in the house of God, so I'll take that back. So listen, what we're doing as a church family has been something that is very near and dear to my heart, and it's this. We are taking a look at how the Older Testament inform, informs the Newer Testament. The title of this teaching series has been There and Back Again. There and Back Again, that was taken from The Hobbit. There's a phrase in The Hobbit that references that. The whole idea about being there and then going back again, and really how that informs who you are. And so as a church family, we're going to take a look at There and Back, John 3.16. John 3.16. Now, before we get there, there's something that I would like to do very specifically as a church family. And what we're going to do is we are going to pray together for our city. We're going to ask God to move in a mighty, mighty way. Because I was still on vacation. I got in late, late last night. But I've got a dear friend here at City Church who's part of law enforcement in our city. And I don't really want to upload to you exactly what he said it was like to be a law enforcement officer in Charlottesville yesterday, but it was anything but good. And so what was sort of focused on a certain group that visited our community to bring disunity and hatred eventually became turned, was turned against some of our law enforcement people, and so we're going to pray together. Would you stand and join me in prayer? This morning's message, I'm going to talk about the enemy of our souls somewhat. But I want to say this about what's going on in our culture, and specifically here in Charlottesville. The enemy of our soul has one agenda. It's disunity and dysfunction. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray that God would touch hearts and lives beginning with ours. I realize that these are uneasy times, not just here in our community, but literally all over the world. But I can tell you this, there was a group of City Church worship people that led worship under the pavilion yesterday on the downtown mall, and someone asked me, why are you doing that? Why would you, on a day when this group is here, why would you do that simultaneously while they're doing what they're doing? And here's why. I know that Jesus is the only answer there is, bar none. There is no other. 
Trust me, no political movement, no effort is ever able to change the human heart. This has always been and always will be an issue of the heart. And Jesus and Jesus alone is the one that calls us to a higher level. And I want to say one other thing. In antiquity, no one ever said before or since, love your enemy, ever. And when Jesus shows up in the Gospels and says, love your enemy, everything changes. Because now it takes God. It takes him to accomplish it. Can we pray together? Jesus, thank you for who you are. Lord, I know that I grew up in a home where there was dysfunction. There was disunity. I know I live in a world where there's dysfunction and disunity. And that has infiltrated me as well. And so I humbly confess before you, God, that I am not the person that's going to bring the cure, but you are. But Lord, in any way you would call us as a church family to participate in bringing your love and your peace and the message of Jesus into this world, we will do whatever you ask us to do. Lord, I pray for a community that has been rattled from the inside. Your word declares that in Jesus Christ there is a peace that passes all understanding that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not found anywhere else. So I pray that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, would touch hearts and lives. Lord Jesus, now we just surrender into who you are as a church family. And as Rob Archer's already prayed for every other church in Charlottesville, we do so again, praying that your people would be a people of strength, but a people of humility, a people that would voice the truths of God, but also live them, and that we would also be a group of people who would know the peace that's only found in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we submit ourselves into you this morning, and we humble ourselves. Because from front to finish, your scriptures teach us God opposes the proud. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John 3.16. I can tell you at the outset of this morning's teaching that when we talk about there and back again, that John 3.16, in fact, John chapter 3, is the, the chapter of Scripture that I have spent more time studying than any other chapter multiple times over. I've done it privately. I've done it academically. John chapter 3 has enamored me my entire Christian life. And one of the reasons why it has enamored me is how simple John 3.16 is. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at, again, exploring the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's so important for our faith journey. Now what I'm going to do this morning is I'm definitely going to take a look at John 3.16 and there's so much that I could say, but I know and you know 
that the mind and the backside of a human person can consume things for about 30 minutes, and we close out. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is what Jesus talked about just before John 3.16 is announced. And so in doing so, I want to say this, that John 3.16 is so simple. It's profoundly simple. But what Jesus does just before that is takes us so deep, so deep, That when we come up from air, biblically, we look at John 3.16 and the depth of where we've gone in biblical understanding is what makes John 3.16 so awesome. It's almost like this. One of the great theologians has once said, until you can understand the depth of your own sin and your own depravity, you can never truly understand the height of the love of God for you. Understand that. I just spent a week with my wife. We were there on vacation together. And one of the things that I exited this week with was how much time we spent together, but how much she loves me. Can I give full confession because she's not here, so I want to talk about her. That is this. How many of you men sit here and go, oh my goodness, my wife actually loves me? Raise your hand. Isn't it shocking? You look at yourself and you think, wow, she loves me. It's amazing. But you know, the Bible really works when you begin to understand God loves you. It's where that's kind of point A and point Z. But one of the things about God's love is this. God's love is so incredible because of how sinful and rebellious, and self-centered, and really evil people can be. You know, on my good days, I might look at God and say, I understand why you love me. On my worst day, what I really like to do is pull people from history that were absolutely horrible people and go, you know, they deserve God's judgment. Look how much better I am than them. How many of you have ever done that? You know, names like Joseph Stalin or Idi Amin or Hitler or something, you you think of these people. But what we're going to do this morning is going to bring us right in front of the cross. It's going to leave us there. And it's going to be an opportunity to look at God's incredible love, but to also look at myself. And so we're going to take a very brief journey, and we're going to begin by reading John 3.16 together. But in order to read John 3.16, we've got to read 14 and 15, because 14 and 15 is this sense where Jesus is speaking to us, and it's almost like he goes super deep, really fast, and then makes this announcement of 16. So can we read it out loud together? Ready? Are you ready? Let's read it out loud. Just as Moses... Lifted up, and snake should be singular, so let's go back and read it again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And an amen goes there. Now, when we begin to look at John 3.16, just that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, That verse is the most Googled verse ever in Scripture. It's a verse that people look at and hang over the outfield fence at ballgames. But again, what I'd like for us to do is look at it in depth based upon what Jesus said just before that verse is given to us. When I mean in depth, I do not mean to complicate. It is one of the simplest verses in all of the Bible. It means what it says. But again, to get the full impact of it, you go deep just before that verse is given to us. Now, when we begin to look at the idea of the Newer Testament and its connections to the Older Testament there and back again, it would be interesting to note that in the Gospel of Matthew, there are four Gospels that begin the Newer Testament. The Gospel of Matthew has 124 references to the Older Testament. The Gospel of Mark has 70. The Gospel of Luke has 109. The Gospel of John has 27. That's all. There are 27 references to the Older Testament in the Gospel of John. What John is really big on, though, are what we would call signs. In the first 13 chapters, there are 18 signs attributable to Jesus. He would do something, and it would say, this was a sign. He would perform a miracle. This was a sign. Signs are big to John. But if there's only 27 references to the Older Testament in the gospel, then when it's referenced, when it's referenced, we need to get it. And one of the primary references is John chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And so what I'd like for us to do is to take a look at this scriptural reference that Jesus quotes as he looks towards the cross. We will find that reference in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. If you have a smartphone, go ahead and turn there or grab one of the Bibles that we provide. If you picked one up coming in, turn to page 124, And therein, we're going to find the story of the bronze snake. The bronze snake. Now, to give you context, Israel has exited the bondage to slavery to Pharaoh from Egypt, and they're moving into take over the promised land. As they exit Egypt and they move towards the promised land, there's a huge problem. 
And the problem is, is that the Israelites cross through the Red Sea. God miraculously provides for them, opens the Red Sea. They move through, and as they turn around, they, or they look in the rearview mirror, the sea literally consumes all of the Egyptian charioteers, and Israel is now free to move towards the Promised Land. Well, they do a few things as they're moving along, and then they come to one portion where they really need to get into the promised land, and they send in 10 spies, and eight come back and say, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Two spies come back and say, let's do this. Let's go in and let's take the land. God is with us. But Israel stops, and then they do something terrible. They begin to murmur against God and against Moses. Exodus 14. And in Exodus 14, they begin to murmur against God, and they begin to murmur against Moses, their leader, that God has raised up, and they're complaining, and they ultimately say this, it would be so much better if we could go back to Egypt, how quickly people forget. And so here they are, right on the verge of stepping into the promised land, and they balk. And they murmur and complain against God and against Moses. And God says to them, well, listen, none of you who have murmured will ever enter the promised land. And that whole generation, 40 years, God's judgment is on them as they stumble around the wilderness, trying to find their way, learning what it now means to be obedient to God. And none of those people who balked ever went into the promised land. And it's during that kind of stumbling around and learning how to follow God and what it looks like to be obedient, we pick up Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, Aaron, Moses' sidekick, has just died, and the children of Israel are traveling, and we pick up the story in Numbers 21.4. And in Numbers 21.4, here's what it says. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, although there was manna every single day. There is no water. God had just supplied from them, literally from a rock. 600,000 men were able to fill their canteens from a rock from which a fountain had become a geyser. And then they go on to say, and we detest this miserable food. God had quail float in every day. So they were eating quail, manna, and water from a rock. They're grumbling. And as we read on, it says, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now I want to push the pause button right there. If I were Moses, I would say, what, 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 what did you just say? 
Oh, you sinned against God. <laughs> and who else did you sin against? Uh, me. That's right. Okay. Let me go back to OBX and think about it for a week. And then I'll come back and I'll pray for you folks because of look, right? But what happens is Moses prays and he prays for the people. Think about the love of that leader for his people. They've been calling for his head. Now he prays for them. And as he prays for them, it says, reading on, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And everyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. That's where I wonder if he didn't take a long time. But he made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And then the story just moves on. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus references this story just before John 3.16? not amazing? That's literally the context for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever would believe on him will have everlasting life, eternal life. Now, if you are like me, Oftentimes, I'll read a biblical story, and I have suggestions for God. Here's one. If I were God, I would have not made a serpent. I would have maybe taken the dove from Noah in the flood with the olive branch in its mouth, and I would have made something like that and put it up on the pole. That's what I would have done. Something about peace. Something about the olive branch, right? And I would have had that paraded around and people would look up at that. Or on the flip side, what I would have done is had a bronze mongoose made, right? Does that make sense? Mongooses kill snakes, right? So I would have had a mongoose made. And I'd say, okay, God, I know you're asking for a bronze serpent, but why don't we form a mongoose Put that up there, and boy, that's going to encourage the people. God, you're like the mongoose, man. That's how this is going to work. But he doesn't. This fascinates me. And I have thought about this all week long. God says to Moses, fashion something out of bronze, fashion a serpent, and raise up on a pole the very thing that's killing them. That's what I want. The very symbol of what's killing them, that's what I want them to have to look at in order to be healed. That's what I want. Place the source of the problem upon a pole. Being blunt, that would be similar to putting a syringe upon a pole for someone who struggles with drug addiction. I want you to think about whatever that sin is that maybe you used to struggle with or maybe now you're struggling with and you know that it's not good. It prevents you from being your best for God and you put that up there and you elevate that and God would say you've got to look at that in order to be made whole. That's what's going to happen. But you know what's interesting? 
that in the Older Testament, in the Greek version of the Older Testament that's called the Septuagint, that word for pole is the same word in the New Testament for sign. Sign. And John's gospel is into signs. Eighteen times in 13 chapters, John writes what Jesus did was a sign. Now, what are signs for? Signs are there to direct you, to inform you, to let you know when something's opened or something's closed. And isn't it fascinating that in the Greek Older Testament called the Septuagint, literally it says, put a bronze serpent on a sign so that everyone can look at it and live. Now, just in case you've romanticized how far we're in and what we're talking about, I'd like the picture of the rattlesnake put up on the screen. Now, how many of you would like to lie down next to this for a cuddle? So this is a a rattlesnake that was actually killed by someone at City Church. They're part owner of a cabin out near West Virginia. And this rattlesnake, I think, has seven rattles, and it's three feet long. This crawled up on the porch of their house. It went to heaven. (laughs) A little earlier, though, they killed a rattlesnake that was 48 inches long and had 13 rattles. 13. Now, I don't know what the rattles mean, but it means that I'm avoiding that thing at all costs. So just picture this. Picture you're there with all of the people of Israel, and you're grumbling against God, and you're grumbling against Moses, and you've totally forgotten what it was like to live in the bondage of Egypt. And you begin to murmur, and you begin to complain, and all of a sudden you look, and out of the ground comes that thing. And it just begins to bite And people around you are infected with venom and everyone's off and running and trying to get away and there's absolute mayhem. And it says so clearly in Numbers that God sent poisonous serpents in among the Israelites that began to bite them. When you look at the story, anyone who's read the Older Testament knows what God is saying. You see, when humankind first fell to temptation, it was a serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. And we find out in Genesis chapter 3 that that serpent is this real representation of the enemy of our soul. And so what we have is, we have a group of people who are grumbling and they're complaining, and all of a sudden God allows evil to be personified again and sends it into the people, and the people now are watching their sin play out real time. People are being bitten. They're dying. Now let's look to the story and let's figure out why they're complaining. Well, they don't like the food. They don't like the manna. It's hot. They're tired. How many of you are like me and you're hypoglycemic? If I don't eat protein five times a day, my wife says I grow fangs. That's how it works. 
Now you've got hundreds of thousands of people, and they're moving together, and they're moving, following God, and all of a sudden, the Bible says so clearly, it says they had to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. And the Bible tells us that the route that they were traveling along was along the Red Sea. Now let's look at the context. They're walking along the Red Sea, they're moving towards, or they're going around Edom, and the reason why was there was a military in Edom that would have wiped them out. So God, out of love, is leading them around the catastrophic thing that's in front of them, but what happens? They grow impatient. I've been there. I know what it's like when God has called me to do something, and obedience I step out, and I have this dumb idea that just because God called me, and just because God is leading me, this is going to be absolutely simple and easy. A cursory reading of the Bible will tell you that when God calls you, He's going to call you to walk by faith. He doesn't have to call you to do something you can do in your own strength. Why would he have to call you to do that? When God calls us and when God called Israel, it's going to be stretching. It's going to be something that will allow us to trust God at a level we've never trusted him before. Let me put it bluntly. If you're following God, there might be times where it's drier It takes longer, and it's tougher than you could have ever imagined it would be. Now, that's where the people are at. But here's where I struggle. They're walking along the Red Sea. That's the place of the grandest miracle God has ever done in the Old Testament. The Red Sea is the place where God literally parted the sea, And they walked right through it, and God protected them miraculously from the Egyptian charioteers. He saved them utterly. And here they are walking along the Red Sea, and as they're walking along, they're having to go around Edom, and they get tired and impatient. They begin to complain. Listen, the struggle I believe in my own life is God's timing. Man, I wish God would speed it up. I wish God wasn't trying to teach me all these things on the way of life. I wish God would just make it happen. But God loves me too much for that. He's going to teach me things. He's going to take me in directions and ways that don't make a lot of sense to me. But I can promise you this. If you will look to the left or to the right, you will be able to remember God's goodness to you. It's right there. The Red Sea is right there, and they're grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses. Don't ever forget God. Let me tell you why we were involved on Saturday from 3 to 4 as a church. We'd ask people to be part of an open-air worship service under the pavilion, or we ask people to pray if you could not be there. Why? Here's why. If you take a group of people who are impatient because even a good thing is taking too long 
and they forget about God, watch out. And so I believe, and my good friend Alvin Edwards, who pastors the African-American church here in town, we believe together that it is absolutely essential that people are in the mix of this, worshiping and praying and remembering God. Because if a group of people gets together and they are impatient and they forget God, watch out. Anything can happen. Now, when I read this story, I had another bone to pick with God. I looked at this story, and here's what I thought to myself. Here's what I thought. You know, God, I don't think the punishment is equal to the crime. They murmured and got bit by poisonous snakes. Don't you agree with me? Don't you think the punishment is a little too much for the crime? Murmur a little bit. And all of a sudden, vipers come out of nowhere and start biting people. Come on! How many of you murmured this morning against your spouse? Of course, they didn't hear you, but you did it anyway. And you were murmuring, and all, did a viper come out of under the bed and bite you in the ankle? And you're running around going, where's the bronze serpent? Where's the bronze serpent? I want to live. It didn't happen. But I look at the crime, and I look at God's judgment, and I say it's not commensurate to the crime. God, what's wrong? Something's wrong here. But then I think of those famous verses in the Psalms that say God's judgment is always right, and it's always true, and it's always accurate. And then when I see it that way, I think to myself, oh my goodness, if God had that reaction to murmuring in that context, then what was happening was serious. And then it dawns on me. God sent serpents. They're a representation of Satan. And as they move among the people, the people are absorbed with sin. And because they're absorbed with sin, now the enemy of their soul has access to them. And the ramifications of that sin begins to bring death as it always does. You see, God can see the end of it, and His judgment is moving swiftly to stop it from getting out of control. Here Jesus chooses this story to share with us before John 3.16. Jesus, I would have picked a different one, a whole lot different, but He doesn't. He literally looks at John 3.16 and the verses just before it and Jesus clearly says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now here's what's fascinating, but it's important to know. The event happens in numbers and then it apparently disappears until John 3 picks it up. But what's fascinating is in 2 Kings 18.4, a thousand years after the initial event, the bronze serpent shows up again. And the bronze serpent in 2 Kings 18 shows up in the tabernacle of God. You see, it was there as a symbol of God's goodness, but people had begun to worship it. 
They were burning incense to the bronze serpent. And it says that King Hezekiah, who was the most godly king that ever served Israel, went into the temple, grabbed the bronze serpent, and he smashed it into pieces because the people were worshiping it and burning incense to it and giving it worship that's only due God. So now we move to the Newer Testament. We go back again to John 3.16. And as we look at John 3.16, instead of a bronze serpent on the pole, there's now a person. When I'm in sin, and sin is beginning to be rampant in my life, and I know that evil has access to me. Now instead of looking at a bronze serpent, I look at a person who's nailed to a tree. And I'm faced with a person, not a snake. Big difference. Because when I look at a person on the cross, something in my gut says, I belong on the cross and he belongs looking at me. But that's not what happens. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gives his one and only begotten son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. When I look at that, I think to myself, what kind of love is that? What kind of love is that where God would take his son and place him on a pole. Make a sign out of Jesus for me. What kind of a God would do that? And then my mind flashes to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now instead of the audience being bitten by the serpent, the Son of God gets bitten by the serpent and fulfills what was prophesied to Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the serpent will strike your son's heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And on the cross, I sit there and I look at myself and I know because it's not a bronze serpent, it's a man. And when I look at that person, I know I belong there and he belongs looking at me. But God flips it and he puts his son on the cross and he allows the convergence of evil and sin and Satan, and the venom of evil, and the judgment of God to come together again. And when it comes together again, it happens on the cross. But here's the difference. Let's look at John 3.16 as we close. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what kind of life? eternal life. You see, in the first one, a bronze serpent was lifted up. 
and whoever looked got natural life. But this time, whoever will stop and look at the cross will not just have natural life, but will have what kind of life? Eternal life in Him. Let's stand together as we close. As we close out our time together, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes in God's presence. Jesus said this, the same way Moses made a sign out of the bronze serpent, he says he will be lifted up. He too will be a sign to anyone who's willing to stop and observe. But the stories could not be more different than what they end up doing for you and me. The first one healed people physically from Satan's bite. But in the second story, we are healed spiritually through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. My question is this. Almost all of us can quote John 3.16 from memory. We can do it with our eyes closed. But my question to us this morning is this. Have you believed on him? Have you believed and received him? All it takes is this, to recognize that you're a sinner. The same way in the Older Testament, they knew they had sinned. And it took that recognition to turn and find healing. This story is the same. Have you stood before the cross and admitted that you have sinned? that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that you have gone against and rebelled against God's best in your life. If you recognize that, the next step is to look at the cross of Jesus and say, He is the one who's on the cross for me. God has lifted Him up. God has made a sign out of him for me. And this time it's not a bronze object, it's a man. It's the Son of God. It's God in the flesh that hangs on the cross as a sign to me. And so if you've never accepted Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that in this moment. And a prayer of accepting Christ would go something like this, repeated after me, if you know that you need to do this in your life, repeat it after me. It goes something like this, Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are. But what I do know is that you died in my place and that you, because of your death, your burial and your resurrection, have the right and the authority to forgive me of my sins. 
So Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. I accept you as the Lord and Savior of my life. And I choose to follow you all of my days. All of my days. And I pray it back to you in Jesus' name. In your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that the prayer team would come forward at this time. If you're here this morning and you have accepted Jesus, I want to encourage you to step out and come and talk to one of our prayer people up front. Or if you have a physical need or an emotional need or a spiritual one, the prayer team is here to pray with you and to pray for you. And so now as we sing this hymn of praise to God, I'm going to encourage you to step out if you have a need in your life, because in Jesus, the serpent's bite has been defeated. And through him, we have victory and healing and wholeness in his name. Let's worship together. And if you need prayer, I'm going to encourage you to come forward.